welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, March 30th, we are studying John chapter 17, verses 20 to 26. In today's text, Jesus' prayer is not only for his disciples with him there on Monday, Thursday. His prayer is also for us, for all Christians who believe in him through the Apostles' word. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Carl Roth. Pastor Roth serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Delighted to be here as always. As we get started today, Pastor Roth, help us with the context. What should we know about John's gospel and what Jesus has been up to leading up to this text today? All right, John's gospel, um, you know, we're getting pretty close to the end of it. And towards the end, um, John 20, you get the purpose statement of John's gospel, that these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we are going to encounter... Um, many touch points with that overarching theme uh, as we look at this text from John 17. Uh, within the context of John 17, uh, we are reaching the conclusion, and many people have tried to outline John 17, um, and the best crack I can give is you probably want to separate out verses 1 to 8, 9 to 19, and 20 to 26. And Quite distinctively, in the first eight verses, John, Jesus prays for himself and asks the Father to glorify his Son and to give life to his disciples through the Son. In 9 through 19, I think that Jesus is mainly praying for the initial band of apostles, those who he has set apart for himself and through whom he's going to share his message with the world. And then the text under our discussion today, 20 to 26, is actually Jesus is going to be praying for us, all believers who come to faith through the disciples' preaching. So it is really a remarkable thing to think that 2,000 years ago, Jesus in the upper room, as he's on the night when he was betrayed, is praying for us, just as even now he is exalted at the Father's right hand praying for us. And one other note then is it's really crucial to emphasize that immediately after John 17 comes John 18, in which uh, Jesus is immediately betrayed into the hands of sinful men. So these are really the last words that he says right before his betrayal and then within hours, his passion. So Jesus is praying these words on Monday, Thursday with his disciples in earshot. I mean, we should understand, I think, that the disciples overhear these words. We talked a little bit about this in a previous episode on this prayer, that Jesus has been giving his farewell discourse all the way back in chapter 13, really, he starts, and now he's praying. How does that that prayer of Jesus that we're seeing in this chapter, how does that fit into his preparations for his coming passion and death, as well as the preparations he's giving his apostles to face those hours. Sure. So since from John 13 to John 17, we get a lot of Jesus' direct speech. And up until 17, most of it is teaching directed to the apostles, preparing them for his departures, I would say. Um, mm -hmm. There's so many layers in John's gospel um, and so initially the departure of Jesus from his disciples is going to be his death and burial, but then he's going to come and see them and not leave them as orphans. But a further departure of Jesus is going to be 40 days after his resurrection. He's going to ascend into heaven and then from heaven, pour out the Holy Spirit upon his church. And we get some very distinctive language about the coming of the Holy Spirit in uh, John 14 and John 16 in particular. So he's really preparing them for multiple departures of him, 
so that they can continue his ministry in his, not his absence, right? His, he's with his disciples to the very end of the age, but without him being visibly present so that blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. How is it that they're, they're going to know him and his father? Because he, Jesus has given the name of the father, the name of the son, the name of the Holy Spirit to the disciples and baptized them into that name. And then also through his word. Um, and so, but, but it is an interesting pivot in John 17, because instead of direct speech, this is a farewell discourse. And as is so common in a farewell speech, um, you have a prayer at the end for the people that you're leaving. And I, I could imagine that this would be, you know, just imagining our own, you know, last will and testament, say to our family, if we did know the hour of our death, if our, not the hour, but if we knew that it was impending, we might very well speak to them, give us, give them that last testament of what we want them to know. But I think it would also be extremely fitting for us then to offer a prayer on their behalf. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing for himself in preparing for his death and for his disciples, preparing for them for his departure. Well, in, in that sense, it's not all that different from what I think was it Jacob at the end of Genesis and Moses and Deuteronomy in their farewells, they have prayers or blessings at the end. But Jesus here, and this is what what is unique, I think, about what Jesus is doing here, especially with the text we've got for today. As you said, we're going to hear him pray for his disciples who are to come, the ones who will believe through what the apostles write down. What's striking about Jesus when you compare him to other, quote, farewell speeches, is that Jesus knows that this isn't really the end, right? He's He is going to depart from his disciples, but he is still going to be with them. And so even the fact that he is about to now in this text pray for people who are still to come gives this more of a, it's it's not just a so long farewell, Alvita saying goodbye kind of kind of song, but there's more coming is I, I guess it has that confident tone. Oh, absolutely. And if if they really were listening carefully at that very point, they would be processing, huh, hold on a second. We know he's about to die. He said it again and again. But the fact that he's talking about this future ministry that we're going to do and that there's going to be a lot of people who come to faith through what we preach should indicate to us that Jesus is not despairing here and he's not really going to be gone. He's going to still be with us. But, you know, in John's gospel, we we get a, a really nice clue in John chapter two about how the disciples oftentimes didn't completely understand things until after he was raised from the dead, and especially until after the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. In John 2, um, you know, everybody thinks Jesus is talking about the temple being destroyed, but then John tells us, no, he was talking about the temple of his body. And it was after Jesus' resurrection that they recalled those words about the temple and realized, oh, he was talking about himself, his death and his resurrection. And I think that's the case here. Um, the true meaning of the words is not going to be completely clear to them until Jesus has opened their minds to understand the scriptures and has given them the Holy Spirit to lead and guide them into the way of all truth. In terms of the the title of this prayer, so far you've been calling it a farewell prayer and the farewell discourse. Oftentimes, this prayer is referred to as the high priestly prayer, and we've talked a little bit about that in previous episodes, but I'm curious, since I haven't heard you use that title yet, if you have any thoughts on on that title or if there's maybe something else we should call it. Um, I would just call it the 17th chapter of the gospel according to St. John. Um, I mean, I think, it, I, believe it or not, it was actually a, a Lutheran um, exegete from, I believe it was the 1600s or 1700s who first gave that title to this prayer. Um, it's certainly fitting because uh, Jesus is the great high priest and he is interceding on behalf of his um, people, his, those who uh, believe in him. So I'm, I have no quibbles with the name. Um, what I always try to avoid um, in interpreting scripture is allowing titles and section headings to uh, back us into a corner when it comes to uh, interpreting scripture. So for example, Matthew 20, 28, 16 to 20 is often described as the great commission, um, which is certainly part of it. But I mean, it also is the institution of holy baptism and the giving of the triune name to the church 
and the promise of Jesus to be with us always to the very end of the age. So I don't have any problem with that title if we insist on giving it a title. Um, but I just want to be careful not to let it let it back back us into a corner. Sure. I, I appreciate that caution. We've talked about that, especially in conjunction with the parables here on Sharper Iron, that sometimes the titles will influence us in a certain direction without actually looking at the text. So we always want to let the text guide us to understand what it is about. So we're going to do that with this last part of John chapter 17 today, the end of Jesus' prayer in this chapter. Begin at verse 20 in John 17 this morning. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made it known to them, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That is our text for today. That's John 17, verses 20 to 26. Pastor Roth, I want to start by talking a little bit about the ones for whom Jesus is praying, not only in our text, but throughout the, the prayer here. As you mentioned previously, Jesus has been praying for his apostles, for those who are there with him on Monday, Thursday, and now he, he makes specific mention of those who are not there with him, those who will believe. And just thinking about this prayer in totality and the way we we think about how to apply it and think about it for ourselves, the fact that you know you and I are, I would say, very specifically mentioned here in verse 20, those who will believe in Jesus through the apostles' word, that's us. How does that impact the way we read the rest of the prayer and the things Jesus has been praying about? Has he are and maybe this is more of a this is also a very general question in the scriptures especially when it comes to the apostles, like how do we know if a certain promise is not necessarily for me, it's for the apostles or I don't know, help me, help me think through some of those things. Sure. So one thing to remember about the apostles is that they are in, even though they're the initial eyewitnesses to the life and resurrection of Jesus, um, they also represent the church and we are in the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And so what is said of the apostles can also be said of us with some maybe distinctions um, to be made when Jesus specifically says, I'm just talking about this particular historical moment. So I don't think that we need to cordon off this section and say that this only applies to us and doesn't apply to the apostles. And then the preceding section only applies to the apostles and not to us. I think that we can read, um, I mean, just think about John 17, 17, right? Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. That's clearly not just talking about, Jesus is not just saying, I'm only going to sanctify the apostles in your word. That's clearly also to be applied to us. Um, I just think that in the context of John 17, it's, it's necessary to note the pivot in verse 20, I don't ask for these only. That has to be referring to this certain group that's sitting there with him. Um, right. And then he's he's just kind of building off of what he's already said to apply it to us in, in, throughout the history of the church. So those words of Jesus in verse 20 are not, we shouldn't take them to mean that the preceding verses had nothing to do with us, right? Absolutely not. Um, and, you know, in the same way that, when you were reading earlier in, in say, John 14 and John 15 and 16, you know, there was a sense in which Jesus is preparing those very specific chosen apostles for his departures. But then we clearly can read, uh, say, a passage like, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
that doesn't just apply to that initial band of apostles. That, of course, applies to all believers. So I think that that's helpful then to remember the apostles are representatives of believers. They're the teachers of believers, but also the representatives. Yeah, I, I think that's very helpful, and I appreciate you bringing that out. One of the things we have talked about in previous episodes on this whole farewell discourse of Jesus that I think illustrates the point you're making is that for the apostles who are hearing this, they are hearing it on Monday, Thursday, which is, of course, prior to Jesus' death on Good Friday and his resurrection. Within the life of the church, we usually hear these texts from the farewell discourse in the season of Easter. So, I mean, if you think about when that happens chronologically, that's after Jesus' resurrection. And yet we know that we can apply them there because that is the season in which we think about our Lord's resurrection, the fact that he is, you know, is ascended and he is returning. And so I think just the church's use of these texts invite us to do exactly what you're saying, to see the apostles as representatives of the church. And so we hear them for ourselves still today. Right. And, you know, one of the dangers of modern critical biblical scholarship, among many, is that it tries to exclusively read the New Testament in historical terms and um, and, and, and pretend like the resurrection never even happened um, or that, it, you know, that it was a myth or something like that. But we cannot read the scriptures without recognizing um, everything that has already occurred, which, of course, the scriptures testify to. And so we're going to read about the things that we presuppose as we go back to the scriptures. Similarly, with the Old Testament, we can't just read the Old Testament pretending like nothing ever happened with Jesus, right? The Messiah did come. The Messiah died and rose. And that then will inform the way we read the Old Testament and also the New Testament. So let's turn then to what Jesus does in verse 20, where he says, I do not ask for these only, that is the apostles who are there with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And you mentioned this toward the outset of our conversation, that this is just a remarkable thing to think that Jesus was praying for you and for me and for all Christians 2,000 years before we were ever around. So talk a little bit more about that, just the remarkable nature of Jesus' prayer in this section. Sure. So Jesus is just doing exactly what he has been doing from the foundation of the world, namely interceding for us. He always lives to make intercession for us, as we say in one of the hymns. Um, and so I, I think this is just one of the uh, one of these rare moments when we get to, to hear what he's praying for. And that really is an important point that we now understand Jesus is not praying that we're going to have a lot of money or have perfect health or that, you know, our enemies are always going to be defeated, but he's praying for very profound things that relate to, I would say, the petitions of the Lord's prayer and the, the central teachings of our faith. He's, he's praying that we might have belief in the word, uh, in the Father, in uh, unity in the church. Um, and then also notice how many times he'll talk about the Father gives to him, and then he gives to us. So the gift-giving nature of God. So Jesus is really emphasizing here that the posture of the believer is always one of reception. In fact, the Son receives from the Father and then gives to us. You mentioned that this is one of the few times within the Gospels that we find out the content of Jesus' prayers. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus praying at various points within his ministry. I suppose that's generally true more in the Synoptic Gospels, and it seems to me, if I'm recalling correctly, that St. Luke especially will emphasize Jesus praying at key moments in his ministry. But although we don't know from every single text what he was specifically praying. So for example, St. Luke won't write down everything that Jesus prayed in terms of like words in red, as we have in John 17. I do think that when we see the recorded prayers of Jesus, such as this one in John 17, or the one we know he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane about you know the, his Father's will being done, that I've always thought about it this way. You can tell me what you think, that that should inform what we think Jesus is praying about in those moments when it doesn't say. So that the fact that we know, at least in this instance, he was praying for his disciples then and his disciples now, 
ought to make us think that in those times when Jesus' words aren't specifically recorded, he was probably praying for something very similar, that it wouldn't be all that different. What, what do you think? I agree with that. Um, I would supplement that, though, by saying it's very clear that Jesus prayed the Psalms. So I, I can also imagine yeah. that, that he's, you know, he prays from the cross, you know, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Psalm 37, into your hands I commit, or is it 31, one or the other, into your hands I commit my spirit. Um, and so I think, I, I imagine him praying the Lord's Prayer, uh, the uh, this prayer, and then also a, a lot of the Psalms, if not all of them. Yeah, I think that's helpful too, to keep in mind that the, the Psalms would have been on Jesus' lips. And again, as you said, we, we have that recorded for us in Scripture as well. Just again, with this idea that Jesus intercedes or he prays for us, as you said, I think it's in the hymn, I know that my Redeemer lives. Mm-hmm. One of the lines is he he lives to, I forget exactly plead. how it's worded. He lives to plead yeah, for plead me. Yeah, plead for me above. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Yeah, that's it. So, I mean, what it, what is the comfort of of that, to know that Jesus prays for us? Why should why should we keep that in mind when we think about Jesus' work on our behalf, that he's praying for us? Sure. Um, well, you know, this is a little bit more related to the Holy Spirit, but in Romans 8, we hear that we don't know how to pray as we ought. So, you know, the, the best we can ever come up with is something that is groping in prayer. But the fact that the Holy Spirit intercedes us, intercedes for us with words, groanings too deep for words, and that the Son is interceding to the Father on our behalf reminds us that our insufficient prayers will be, are always taken up by the Son and the Holy Spirit, um, perfected, we could even say, and then presented to the Father so that we don't have to worry about getting the mode just right or the words just right. Uh, we're children babbling and and talking to our Father, and the Father just loves to hear us pray. But the prayer's acceptability then is mediated through the Son and the Holy Spirit. All right, so this is a great comfort to us that our Savior, our brother, Jesus Christ, prays for us before his Father and our Father as well. That's what he's doing here in John 17, especially beginning at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, that is these apostles with me, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be, and the sentence keeps going, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's so much there to unpack, Pastor Roth, but I think that the primary thought that we need to start with, because Jesus will repeat this multiple times, is the thought that they may all be one. Help us help us into that. What is Jesus talking about? Well, I don't want to jump there too quick um, before okay. overlooking, without, you know, without taking a quick look at those who will believe in me through their word, that is what leads into the purpose clause. So faith coming comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. So Jesus himself expresses that there. It is always going to be the word that generates faith, and then that is what will lead to unity um, with the Father and the Son. Um, okay, so that they may all be one. Um, I would briefly talk about how this verse is, has been misused um, in especially what we call modern ecumenical discussions about relationships between different church bodies. Um, note, first of all, that this is part of a prayer. So this is not a commissioning on the part of Jesus. So Jesus doesn't say, now therefore go unto all nations and be one, just as you, Father, just as the Father is in me and, and I am in the Father. Uh, this is part of his prayer, and so this is a something that can only be given as a gift. It cannot be achieved by human efforts. Um, so while it is laudable to attempt to achieve unity in the church on the basis of doctrine and secondarily practice, um, I, I do um, think that this verse has been abused to some extent uh, in these modern ecumenical discussions in which, on the one hand, uh, Protestants have said, well, we just need to kind of uh, form um, alliances and, uh, you know, uh, fellowship based on external unity without resolving the actual agreement and doctrine. And that would be kind of the, the, the Protestant approach to unity, um, such as, say, the Lutheran World Federation has said, you know, we can have fellowship with Reformed denominations 
who deny the body and blood of the Lord in the Lord's Supper, deny infant baptism, we can have that fellowship simply by declaring it. That's a man-made fellowship, and it ultimately leads to a, an agree-to-disagree approach, which is certainly not allowed because our Lord emphasizes unity and true doctrine. Um, on the other hand, the, you, can, you can force unity by a, a hierarchy. And so the, the classic example of this would be the Roman Catholic Church, which basically is a big umbrella on, um, with the Pope at the top and basically acknowledging the Pope as the vicar of Christ on earth is, you know, constitutive of being um, a Roman Catholic. And so it, even if you have all sorts of disagreements in doctrine uh, within that church, the unity is expressed in its head, the Pope. Um, I, I think that we, um, we certainly have to acknowledge that there is some element of visible unity that is expected by Jesus in this prayer because it refers to the world believing that Jesus sent uh, sent them or that he was sent by the Father as a consequence of seeing the unity of believers. But I think it's way too far of a stretch to say that this is some sort of command that we cast down all doctrinal distinctions and just pretend to be in unity either un under an umbrella or by ignoring doctrine. Yeah, yeah, those are those are ways that are not taking Jesus' words here faithfully. We're going to keep looking at these words of Jesus and consider ways that we can keep them faithfully. On the other side of the break, you're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We are talking to Pastor Carl Roth this morning about John 17. We will be right back. Please stick around. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, March 30th. We are studying John chapter 17, verses 20 to 26 with Pastor Carl Roth. He serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, you, you talked before the break about what Jesus says about they may all be one and some of the ways that these words from Jesus have been misused by the modern ecumenical movement. You talked about Protestants usually having some sort of agree to disagree approach, which ends up with a man-made unity. And then the Roman Catholic Church having a more hierarchical way of doing this. As long as you can call the Pope the head of the church, then you can fall under our umbrella. Also a man-made way of, of doing this. Now, I, I don't know that this is necessarily where Jesus' words are meant to take us. But having brought this subject up, what would be the, the faithful way of seeking unity instead of doing agree to disagree or saying, hey, as long as you have the right person at the top, you're good. What would be the faithful way of seeking after unity? Right. So what we see is Jesus' point of comparison for unity. He says, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And so the unity of believers is going to be at least similar to the relationship between the Father and the Son. Now, I don't think we'd want to push this into some sort of, you know, pantheistic way of saying that we are in, integrated into the Godhead in a way that we likewise become God. That certainly would not be faithful either. But we know that the Father and the Son are perfect in will, uh, perfect in um, unity of action. And so when we are baptized in the triune name, we are brought into fellowship or unity with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we partake of that unity. And that unity then extends from one believer to another because we all share in uh, unity with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I think that we need to, and this is sometimes described as a mystical union because it's not something we can really understand, but it is the most profound, wonderful gift we could receive that we are actually buried with Christ in his death and raised up with him to new life. 
and united with, with God. And so when Paul says we're in Christ, we are in, in God. Um, and that means that we're safe with him. And so our unity then, um, our, our expressions of unity, that is uh, um, aiming for doctrinal unity and fellowship in Christian churches, flows out of the, the unity that has already been given to us. Because we are sinners, because this world is broken, we will never really achieve a perfect unity um, visibly. Um, and honestly, are we even really united with ourselves? I mean, my old Adam and my new man are constantly fighting against each other. How much more is the case when you get 10, 15, or 100 people together in a church? Um, so so this has to be a unity. Jesus is praying for something that is, is beyond human understanding. Um, a gift that extends out into eternal life and is not some sort of temporal manufactured unity. Hmm. Well, we talked a little bit about this yesterday because Jesus talks about in the previous part of the prayer about his disciples being one as well. And we mentioned that in the creeds, we say that we believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. So this is an article of faith that the church is united. And I, I suppose... In that sense, I mean that that adds something to to what Jesus says here. That although the visible unity may never be achieved and we won't see it fully, there is actually a true unity in those who believe in Christ for salvation. Right? There really is. And you know, the original words of the Nicene Creed it begins, "We believe," and and in fact, Luther's hymn on the the creed does say, "We all believe in one true God." And so I think that you can, you know, we do testify to our unity in faith when we join together in confession and hymn and prayer. Um, and, and I do think the world can see that we're, we're united. But that, that's, again, why, like, it's, it's a bit ridiculous to say that these corporations, which is, you know, what denominations or church bodies are, these, these man-made corporations could express that unity. That's absurd. But w- when we get down to the, you know, grassroots level, and people are actually standing together confessing their faith, and especially under in times of persecution, when they band together and say, no, you know, we are going to stand with our Lord, we're not going to give a pinch of incense to Caesar, um, or to accommodate to the world, we're going to remain united with our Lord in faith. Uh, that is that testimony of unity that the world can, in fact, see. Hmm. Well, and, and to seek after that unity in a man-made, man-made way, as you described the, the two ways that are, are tried, that would ultimately end up harming the real unity that we have in Christ. Because if we take this agree-to-disagree approach, or simply just make sure we got the right guy on top, either way, that ends up undermining the actual words that Jesus said, the words that were written down and preached by the apostles, and so if we're going to if we start undermining those then ultimately that actually threatens the true unity that we would have in Christ and his words. Yes, and then it also runs the risk of harming the faith or destroying the faith of those who are gathered together under Christ. And so that's why our our own church body, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, uh makes no we don't pretend that we've achieved perfect unity um in in our synod. But what we've all done is committed ourselves to one standard of teaching, the Holy Scriptures, and then as they're expressed accurately in the Lutheran Confessions, uh, and then we're going to strive to walk together in unity. We're never going to achieve it perfectly. And, and so there's no room at all for uh, you know, chest thumping and, and uh, boasting about our unity. Rather, we just celebrate the, the unity that we do have outwardly as a gift. And then we strive to uh, to keep our Lord's word pure. Let the one who has my word speak my word faithfully, Jeremiah says. Um, and and um, that's the emphasis then, is re- uh, recognizing that it's all a gift. And it's a gift then that's to be treasured and preserved and shared with others because we know faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It is the salutary teaching that is going to bring more people into the fellowship. So keeping the emphasis on that salutary teaching of Christ, the words that he has given, that is going to be key when it comes to unity. And and again, Pastor Roth, in, in terms of, you know, you mentioned this 
we want to especially think about this at like a congregational level, a local level of unity that we have there. I mean, again, what about like, as you think about interacting with those who are not members of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, a, a congregation and fellowship with us, what does it look like to, to seek after the unity that Jesus talks about here on, again, like with a, my Presbyterian neighbor or my Methodist or Baptist neighbor, what does that, what does that look like? Well, in order to honor God's name, we must keep his word pure and we must accept his, what his word says, whether it not or not it fits in with our human reason. So um, while we acknowledge that whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, we recognize that there are Christians in any number of denominations. We don't, it's, we're not God, and so we don't know who belongs to the Lord and who doesn't. Um, all we can do is faithfully preserve that word, um, fight against false doctrine, which is what we're convinced other denominations actually hold to, and then work towards re resolution of those issues. Um, by encouraging people to take what God's word says literally and seriously and not try to explain it by human reason. Mm, that's right. Hold on to the word of God, for that is our very life. And that is where true unity will be found, the unity that he gives, not the false unity that we would try to create by simply agreeing to disagree. So Pastor Roth, is, and if I've skipped over something that you want to address, please please go back to it. But looking at, at where we are, I think we're about verse 22, where Jesus brings up the fact that he brings up his glory. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. So how does the glory that Jesus has received from the Father, how does that relate to this unity we've been talking about? Yeah, so the glory, I think, in, in John's gospel really finds its um, central emphasis on Jesus' glorification on the cross and then his resurrection and ascension into heaven. And so, um, as we discussed earlier, a lot of the stuff Jesus says here is kind of pointing forward as well. And so he speaks of it having been given already in the perfect tense, but the actual accomplishment of that is still to come. Uh, but I think that the, the central emphasis there on the glory is that we're going to share in uh, being buried with him in his death, raised up in resurrection, united with him, and then finally participate in the glory of paradise with him in heaven. Mm. And so those those gifts, and I think you mentioned this already, those gifts are given to us in holy baptism. This is the way St. Paul talks in Romans 6, right? That we receive everything that belongs to Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, those things become ours in holy baptism. Yeah, and we'd also say through the word. I mean, Jesus will talk, say, abide in me, you know, my word, and then, you know, I'll abide in you and you'll abide in me. Um, we can also speak of the Lord's Supper as a, a place of union with Jesus. Where where does he talk about that? In, is it in John's gospel that he'll talk about the union that we have with him in his, in his supper? Um, I suppose if you take John 6. Well, did, you know, that's a hotly debated point. Um, I, I do um, happen to think that if we're going to, uh, as we do, as all Lutherans do, take John 3 as a exposition of the gifts of baptism, then I think that it's perfectly reasonable to understand John 6 as a um, reasonable is maybe the wrong word. I think it's faithful to accept John 6 as um, an exposition or sermon on the benefits of the Lord's Supper. So while it doesn't actually um, tell us the institution of the supper, how it's to be done, it, nonetheless, uh, the words are very strong and powerful in emphasizing that whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood has eternal life and is united with Jesus. So um, I think that it's, it's a, a, a very healthy application of it, especially when someone's last hour is drawing near. You know, um, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. I mean, what a great thing you can say to a person. Um, and I think the... Uh, even in our catechism, we speak of um, the Lord's Supper giving us forgiveness of sins, and where there's forgiveness of sins, there's also life and salvation. And that's really going beyond the words of institution and into more of the thought of John 6. Hmm. Yeah, the thing that I appreciate about the way you're, you're taking us through these words of Jesus is that in the way that it is misused by the modern ecumenical movement, the way that I, I think I usually hear this talked about is like, well, see, look, Jesus' prayer hasn't been fulfilled. 
you're getting in the way of Jesus fulfilling his prayer or having Jesus prayer answered or, or something to that effect that somehow these words of Jesus has failed. Whereas the way that you're, you're giving it to us is no, actually Jesus is busy fulfilling these words and giving us the gifts of unity and uniting us with himself and with his father and with each other in very real ways. So far from looking at, so instead of looking at Jesus' words here in John 17, it's like, oh, that's so sad that we haven't yet realized that. Rather, this becomes a prayer in which we rejoice. Look at the gifts that Jesus is giving to his, to you and to me as Christians and to his whole church here on earth. Yeah, exactly. I, there's, this is not a commissioning. Uh, this is this is a prayer, and it's going to happen because Jesus is praying to his Father, and all the prayers of the Son are going to be answered by the Father. Um, so this is something that happens here in time through the means of grace, and then it will be finally achieved um, on the last day in the resurrection, when, as Paul puts hmm. it in 1 Corinthians 15, God will be all in all. Hmm. So here in time and there in eternity. That sounds familiar to me. Huh. Yeah, I think I've heard that that's, somewhere. Catechism, that's right? The second petition, right? The second petition of the Lord's yes, Prayer. Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. Good. good. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's see. I think I think that brings us about to verse twenty-three. And again, if I'm missing something, or or if you have more to say, please please feel free to go back. In verse twenty-three, again, Jesus keeps on this same thing theme: "I in them, and you in me." that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Help us into verse 23, Pastor. Oh, there's so much here. Um, Well, I do think it's interesting that the same verb form that is used um, when Jesus says, it is finished on the cross, does show up in the Greek in verse 23, um, and it's translated as they may become perfectly one. And so uh, that really strikes me as wonderful that, you know, Jesus gives his life there for the entire world. He draws all sin into himself and um, and dies so that then connected with his death and his resurrection and baptism, we can become not just one, but perfectly one, just as the Father and the Son are perfectly one. And uh, then we do get another little reference to that the world may know you, that you sent me. And so this, this identity of us as baptized Christians confessing our faith together is also something that's going to be seen by the world. Uh, but then also the that the, the uh, father loved the son and he also then is going to so love us. And uh, Jesus in John 10 talks about that, you know, we know that the, the son loves the father and the father loves the son because the, son, the father actually sends the son to die for us. And then the son loves the father by and loves us by giving his life for us. So I do think we also can, can see us a, a sense of participation in, um, this love when we lay down our lives for one another and for our faith. And then also we, this is going to be painful, right? Just as the the father did love the son, but he also bid that he go to the cross. So also we are going to be crucified with our Lord. And that, that echoes a little bit of Galatians too, doesn't it? You know, I've been crucified with Christ. It is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus continues in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Again, there's so much here to talk about. What what jumps off the page to me right away is that the, we are described, because again, Jesus is talking about us as those who have believed in the disciples' word, Jesus includes the, us as those who ha, the Father has given to him. That's, that's a lot of grace just in that little clause. Yeah, and, and in John 6, Jesus says, you know, that everything that's given to him is not going to get lost. And John 10, right? No, no one can snatch, snatch them out of the Father's hand. So if we are given to Jesus, then we're going to be safe and sound. Yeah. So, okay. That's, that's there in verse 24. And also then that, that phrase at the end, before the foundation of the world, that's, that seems like pretty important language. Help us with those words or, or anything else in that verse, Pastor Roth. Yeah. I mean that, you know, we're going to take that as uh, very similar to something Jesus says earlier in uh, this chapter um, when he talks about the glory that he had with the father before the world even existed. Um, so, so this is not merely 
that Jesus is, like the heretic Arius said, the first creature and then kind of is a demigod through which the creation is made. No, this is John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, was God. And so the perfect love between the Father and the Son and also the Holy Spirit existed before the world was even founded. And it is their love then that moves them to come out into the world. And God so loved the world, he loved the world in this way, that he gave his son. In verse 25, Jesus continues in his prayer, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. That that title that Jesus uses, O righteous Father, I, I don't know that I can recall that being used elsewhere, perhaps somewhere. It's not obviously wrong to call the Father righteous, but just O righteous Father as an address to God strikes me as, as one that I, I can't recall hearing somewhere else. Maybe you can think about it. What does Jesus pray in this verse? I can't think of any other places where this these exact words are used together. Um, now, of course, the attribute of righteousness ascribed to the Lord is throughout the Old Testament. So, you know, you can apply it righteous to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it certainly makes sense. Uh, but the righteousness of God is shown in not in that he winks and nods and says, you know, no big deal, sin will be sin, but in the fact that he does expect um, his his law to be kept. And so, so Jesus, acknowledging that his Father is the righteous one, has in his life rendered to the Father perfect righteousness. When he goes to be baptized, he says, I must do this because it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. So I do think that, that just the... the the fact that righteousness here does bring to mind that central concept of the, the Bible, justification, which means being declared righteous. And so it, it's a good way of remembering that Jesus, as the righteous one and holy one of God, has rendered perfect righteousness to the Father actively in our behalf, and then passively suffers for us on the cross. Now, what does Jesus pray then, having called God, O righteous Father, what does he pray for in verse 25? Well, actually, in, in this verse, he's he's speaking to his father, right? Even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. So so here he's he's um really just speaking and confessing to his father. Um and, and actually this is the case um in, in the verse 26 as well. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So I, I read these last two verses as he's pivoting and now saying, all right, I've prayed for them, but now with my passion right at hand, now we're going to finish this. We're going to take it to the last, love them to the end. What do you think of that? Well, and that, that takes us back to where the whole farewell discourse, this Monday, Thursday narrative got started at the beginning of John 13. You use that language of of the evangelist John that he loved them to the end. So now it's I mean it's almost drawing the drawing that whole section of John's gospel to a, a conclusion, compelling us forward into the passion narrative that does begin there in chapter eighteen. In those words of Jesus, talk a little bit about how Jesus differentiates between the world there in verse twenty five. The world does not know you, but then obviously the difference between him knowing the Father and also these disciples knowing about Jesus, the one the Father has sent. Talk about that distinction between the world and Jesus and his disciples. Yeah, so the world is is trapped in darkness because of sin. And um, I think about the, you know, Matthew 11, there's this, they call it this kind of Johannine interlude where uh, Jesus kind of like says some words that seem like they sound a little bit more like John's gospel, but the fact that it's the same Jesus, of course, uh, would 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 indicate that this is just one more thing Jesus taught. It just happened to show up there. But Jesus there says, no one can know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son reveals the Father. So Jesus, uh, back in, in John 14, you know, Philip is like, hey, show us the Father and that'll be good enough. And Jesus is like, oh, come on, Philip. You know, don't you realize that if you've seen me, You've seen the Father because the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And so uh, in spite of the, the disciples' ignorance and, and uh, obtuseness, Jesus has repeatedly revealed to them the love of the Father. And, and, um, and 
So they do know the Father, even though it's imperfect. By faith in Jesus, they have faith in the Father and they know him. But the, the world can't know the Father because Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So the world cannot, does not know at this point. And yet, and this I, I think you know, maybe ties together some of the things we've been talking about, where Jesus says, I will continue to make it known, that is the Father's name, that the love may be in them and I in them. This idea of Jesus making the Father's love known going forward, all of that eventually will tie back into, and again, I know, I know it's not a commissioning, but it, it ties into what Jesus has been praying about so that this unity that he gives will then make his name known in the world, which is happening still today. So, I mean, all of these things are, are really coming together as Jesus concludes his prayer here. Well, this is remarkable because you're right. This is not a commissioning. This is more of a promise and a commitment Jesus is making to make that love that's shared between the Father and the Son manifested among the disciples. But it does harken back to John 13, where there is a commissioning, love one another, right? A new commandment I give you. And then specifically, you know, the world will know that you're my disciples by your love. So it's it's um, there, you do have a commandment of Jesus, but here Jesus is basically saying, I'm going to take care of it. And he's saying this to his Father yeah. about, you know, the, the one to whom he's about to offer his life. So uh, again, you, you mentioned earlier that there's nothing despairing or hopeless about this. This is just straight up, I'm going to do this. And that, that's where that word, it is finished, it is accomplished, is, is so wonderful. Because there from the cross, he shouts that out. And, and, and then we can know that, it, that everything he said he was going to do, he has done. And that also then applies to everything he's promised to do in the future. Pastor Roth, we have about two minutes left on the morning. As you reflect on this prayer of Jesus, both what we've talked about, particularly today in the entirety of the prayer, help us to, to wrap it up and push it push us forward then into what we will encounter as Jesus goes forward into his passion in the next chapter and following. In the immediate context, I would point to something that happens in Gethsemane. Uh, John's Gospel does not name Gethsemane, but that's where it was. Um, and it's very unlike the synoptics. Uh, because in John 18, Jesus will say, I am, ego e me, three times. And it's in that context that the crowd like falls backwards when he speaks those words. So Jesus uh, does actually manifest his divine glory a little bit more leading up to his passion than we see in the synoptics. But I think that ties in beautifully with the fact that he says uh, that he was existed before the foundation of the world and that he had glory with the Father before the world even began. This is a reminder that the man going up to die on the cross is not any ordinary man, but is the divine son. And it is only the death of the son of God that can be sufficient to pay for the sins of the entire world. Pastor Carl Roth is pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. He's been helping us today to study John chapter 17, verses 20 to 26. Pastor Roth, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you for having me. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the gospel according to St. John, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.